Why don't you turn in your Bibles, we're going to open to Matthew chapter 6, and we've been um, working through a series in, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first kind of major public message which Jesus delivers in Matthew's Gospel. It covers three chapters, it's fairly long, it covers all kinds of stuff to do with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and every little section has such a punchy, life-changing um, dynamic voice to our situation, and I think it's no less true today, and we're going to be looking at the enormous subject of prayer. Now, I'm going to deal with it a larger chunk than usual in a r- more rapid way, largely because earlier this year, we actually did a series on, on the Lord's Prayer, so um, I'm not going to be covering as much detail today, and you can go back and check out what we said and wrote about that at the time if you want to, but um, let's just jump in, shall we? So rather than <clears throat> rather than read the whole section, we'll just uh, go through bit by bit as we move through this section of the sermon. But hopefully you're there. So Matthew 6, anyone know what page that is? 1428, if you haven't found it yet. And we're going to pick up from verse 5 in just a minute or two. But let me just say this then about prayer just to begin with before we dig into what Jesus has to say. <clears throat> he assumes... That if you're a Christian, then you will pray. And uh, <clears throat> it should be the most natural thing in the world for somebody. That if you're a Christian, there's a reflexive desire to talk to God in prayer. And that's not to say that it's easy. I think the opposite is true. I was just chatting with C on the way into church today. And she said, what's it about today? And I said, prayer. And she was like, wow, prayer is just so hard. And it's like, you know, you don't need to tell me. I know it. It's really hard. But having said that, no matter how weak your prayer life is, no matter how much you feel that it's deficient or lacking, the reality is that there is still that instinct within you, if you're a child of God, that you want to pray. It's a natural thing that if you're born again by the Spirit, which is just one way of expressing what it means to become a Christian, that somehow God has changed you in your nature, that that new nature that's inside you wants to speak to the Father in prayer. I hope you agree with that. And if you, if you have no desire to pray or do not pray, then whatever you think of yourself, the truth is that you, you cannot be a Christian. And so I want you to think about that and weigh that up as, you, as we talk about this. Now, the next thing we need to say then is that just because Christians pray, that doesn't mean that all prayer is Christian. Just because Christians pray, it doesn't mean that all prayer is Christian. Because there's a number of questions that lie behind the action of praying. Like these. Who is it that you think that you're praying to? What is he like? How do you approach? So, I mean, maybe we have sort of in the Western world at least a diminished sense of reverence of God. But the question's still there. What makes you think you are even allowed to pray to him and, and what makes you think that he'll listen to you or that he'll answer you? What kind of prayer is it that this God that you believe in will accept or pay attention to? And why are you praying? What is it that's in your heart? What's the, what's the motivating passion that drives you to pray? So how you answer all those questions is going to differ from person to person. And absolutely it's going to differ from place to place and religion to religion and all those kinds of things. So just because Christians pray, it does not mean that all prayer is Christian. And I think it's helpful to think of it like this, that 
When we use the word God, there's no way that we can all be thinking of the same thing or impart the same meaning into that word. You know, if I was to throw any name at you, like, like the name Charlie, all of you are going to have a bunch of random associations that come with that name. You may have known someone at school or growing up who's a Charlie, or you may, um, may think of the magazine thing that happened in Paris, the Charlie Hebdo thing, or you may think of a cartoon character like Charlie Brown, whatever it is. You have associations with the word Charlie. You pour meaning into the name based on your experience and what you've been told and who you've met and so on and so on. And this is true, obviously, when, um, when you're a parent, you're thinking about, or when your wife is pregnant, you're thinking about names for your prospective children. One of the things you start, when you start suggesting names to each other is you find that you're crossing each other's names off the list because some of the names have like weird and random associations. Like it might have been somebody who you had to who bullied you at primary school, or somebody who you fancied at school, and therefore you really can't name your children um, after them. And so, like, you know, in, in a, a number of years' time, when you guys are married and you are having your kids, you know, you could just choose any random name, like, like Eugene, and some of you are going to have very positive associations with the name Eugene, and you'll, you'll just go in for that. We love the name Eugene. Others of you may be less so, but I can't imagine why. So the same is true. What I'm trying to push you to see is the same is true when it comes to prayer. That your theology, let's put it like this, your theology shapes your practice. Whether you think of yourself as having a theology or not, it doesn't really matter. You do. Whatever you think about God, that's your theology. And your theology, your belief about God, the things that you say are true about him, shape the way and the reasons why you pray. And so... What Jesus is dealing with, I'm going to show you three things that I think he talks about in this passage. They all come back to this question of what you believe about God in the first place and how that then affects your prayers. And we're going to think about um, three things. People-pleasing prayer, pointless prayer. Those are the negatives, by the way. It's not all going to stay there. People-pleasing prayer, pointless prayer, and then proper prayer. What Jesus wanted uh, from his people when it comes to prayer. So let's jump in at verse 5. It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. So what's going on here? What's Jesus describing? kind of a person? What kind of prayer life is he describing? And what does that description say about this person's belief in God? I think the answer is this. We've got to remember what we were talking about last week because the same issue came up in the last section. When Jesus puts his finger on something here, he calls hypocrisy. The hypocrites who are praying as a public show. Do you remember what the word meant? It was the, it was the ancient word that that spoke of somebody who was an actor on the stage in the Greek theatre. And these actors used to play, act to the choir, and they used to also wear masks. So it's a very vivid picture of um, what it means, basically, to do your, your kind of religious devotion as a show to other people. Now, if we ask yourself, why would someone do that? The answer is because they believe that prayer is more about how it impresses people around them than what it achieves in terms of the relationship with God. So I would want to push and say this, that what Jesus is describing here is a person who is a kind of secret atheist. 
that even though they profess belief in God, we're not sure it's really there in the heart. Or at best, they're a deist. You may not have heard that term. It was sort of fashionable a couple of centuries ago. And it was somebody who said, there is a God, but we don't know much about him and he's not really involved in the world. So prayer is a useless and pointless exercise. So even though I believe in some kind of higher power, it's not, it's not a personal relationship. There's no way you could know him in any intimate, real way. And so what Jesus is pointing at here is this. He's, he's, he's describing a situation in which a person is subjected to pressures from their tribe, essentially, to put on a religious display. I know that probably the vast majority of what we experience in the world in which we live is the very opposite. That most people find religious acts a little bit embarrassing and shameful, don't they? And, um, and so most people want to try and hide this stuff. But just bear in mind, it's all about what tribe you're in. We're all kind of shaped by unspoken expectations and pressures um, of, the, of the tribes that we move in. It affects things like what you wear. It affects things like what you consider to be an, a, a worthwhile, honorable career choice with your life. It affects how you spend your social time. It affects how you name your children. It affects whether you like watching the Springboks lose in rugby. It affects all kinds of things. Sorry, guys, we've got a few South Africans in here. The bleeding hearts. <laughs> the tribes that you move in affect your life in, in ways you, you haven't even realized or acknowledged. And this is no less true in religious matters. The great danger of being somebody who, who joins yourself to a group of religious people, like joining a church like this, is that suddenly it becomes acceptable to display a certain face to the people around you. And I know that your hearts are far more complicated than what I see on a Sunday. That you struggle with things that you don't admit. That there are conflicting desires and passions and drives in your life. Stuff that you're willing to admit, stuff that you're not. And that all of us, to a degree, are doing what Jesus describes here. Playing to the choir of other people, putting on a mask. But if a person does this consistently, and it's the truest thing about them, then the reality is that while they might profess belief in God, they are, in a sense, a secret atheist or a deist. There's no living relationship with the God who is there. How could you possibly recognize that in yourself if it were true of you? I think the answer is this, and the diagnosis is right here in the verse that Jesus, where Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. The most powerful indicator that your relationship with God isn't, isn't real is that you never want to talk to him in private, that you only ever talk to him when you're other, with other people. What you do in secret, we said last week, is the real you. It's who you are. You can think about this in terms of marriages. There's a few of us in this church who are married. And uh, what you see about the way we relate to each other is what we project to you to a certain degree. I'm not saying it's conscious or deliberate, but it can be. So if I hold my wife's hand... You may make some kind of a a quick snap judgment about what kind of marriage we have. 
But you don't know anything about our marriage until you see us. It'd be a bit weird. You'd have to have some kind of hidden camera thing going on or something like that. Unless you saw us in secret, where you, you know the way we relate to each other, the way we talk to each other, when nobody's watching. That's the sign of what a marriage really is, or any relationship. It's why when, you know, you hear about these sham marriages occasionally where people marry to fight, try and get, you know, a visa to live in a certain country. It's the government's job to dig beneath the surface and say, okay, that's what you're portraying to us. What's the reality of what's going on in your life? And this is true in our relationship with God as well, isn't it? Jesus is talking here about people who are kind of functional atheists, who are whose whole religious devotion is just an act of pleasing the people around them. And the the sharpest diagnosis is what you do in secret. Who you are when no one's watching, when you're trying to, if you you speak to God at all in that quiet place. What does Jesus want of you? He doesn't want people to have this kind of show of belief. He wants the real thing. That's why he tries to press on his disciples. He says, your father who is in secret, he'll reward you. It's a matter of what you believe. Do you really believe that? Then you'll go into the secret place to pray. And what he wants of us particularly is this. There was an advert that used to run um, years ago, I think when I was a child, for R. White's Lemonade. Probably none of you remember this, but there was a little slogan that said, I'm a secret lemonade drinker. And this guy, this geeky guy, used to creep downstairs in the middle of the night and sing a song up. Maybe Naomi knows it. She'll sing it to us later. No. I'm a secret lemonade drinker. And look, that's exactly what Jesus wants of us here. When he says, go into your room, the word he uses for room there was a word that was often used of the store cupboard in the house. It would be a windowless cupboard somewhere in the house, stock full of good stuff. And it's a, it's a vivid picture of what he means here. That the only way that you're ever going to get any real genuine benefit from prayer, from God, is when it's in a secret place, when you raid the store cupboard of his love for you. I, made, I read this amazing um, description of this um, in John Stott's book on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just read to you what he says here. He says there are treasures awaiting us when we pray. When we pray, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we indeed God's children. And we're granted strong assurance of his fatherhood and love. He lifts the light of his face upon us and gives us peace. He refreshes our soul, satisfies our hunger, quenches our thirst. We we know we are no longer orphans, for the Father has adopted us. No longer prodigals, for we have been forgiven. No longer alienated, for we have come home. He wants you to taste something of the sweetness of what it is to know God in the secret place. That's the first thing Jesus talks about, people-pleasing people prayer. The second is this, point, pointless prayer. He goes on, let's read the next verses. <clears throat> when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, what's going on here? What kind of a God does this person believe in? I think the answer is that this person undoubtedly believes in a, in a God. But what they believe about God is, is somehow mixed up and wrong. Now, I don't want to labor the point, but it's true, isn't it? That what you understand about him will shape the way you speak to him. If you were to ask questions of a person versus a search engine, 
You're going to ask it in two different ways, aren't you? So let's say you want to go on holiday to, to Iceland next winter, go and see the Northern Lights. You might go and ask a friend who's been there, hey, um, excuse me, but I was thinking about going, you probably wouldn't say excuse me to your friend, but you might say, I was thinking about going on holiday to Iceland. I heard you went, what's it like? Do you recommend going? Where do you go? What's a good place to stay? Where can you see the Northern Lights, etc., etc." Now, unless you're a very old person, you're not going to go into Google and go, hey, I was thinking about going to to Iceland next winter and I'm going to go on holiday and is there a place you recommend to stay? Now I have seen people do that and they do tend to be extremely old people but that's not how it works, is it? You just type Iceland holiday um, recommended or something like that in, in, in your search engine. And the reality is as well that w- what you understand about the person you're speaking to is totally fundamental to how you relate to them. So when Jesus says here, don't be like the Gentiles who who use these empty phrases. He uses a word which just means, the scholars think it just means babbling. He says, don't babble along like like the Gentiles, like those who have different gods to the God we believe in. If you're babbling, then it says something about the God that you think you know. And I think what he's putting his finger on is, is a number of things. He's talking about just endless repetition. I don't mean persistence in prayer, because Jesus, if you know his teaching, he strongly urged us to keep going in prayer, to be persistent. But he is talking about that kind of endless repetition of the same phrases over and over again. He's talking about um, length of prayer, I think, to a degree. So I think there are certain people who think that, that the longer you pray, the more powerful it becomes. Now, the Bible tells us to pray a lot. Paul says, pray without ceasing. But it never tells us that the longer your prayer sessions are, the more weighty they become until eventually you tip the scales of God's will just by the sheer might of your prayer life. It doesn't give us that indication at all. The Bible always connects strength of prayer with other things like faith and whether you're standing on the promises and whether you're praying in God's will and so on. I think he's putting his finger on people praying mindlessly. It's interesting that even though Jesus says this, it's become part of some... Christian traditions to pray in ways that that almost force you not to use your mind. So using things like rosary beads to just repeat the same prayers over and over again. I don't know how you can do that in a mindful, um, deliberate, intelligent way. And you know how in some traditions it's common to use a kind of set liturgy in church where you read out the prayers? Now I'm not saying it's it's never going to work, but I think probably a lot of the time you or the congregation who are kind of praying with you are not necessarily imparting any intelligent engagement with the words that they're reading off the page because they're not your own words. But the same can be true of churches like ours where we offer what we call extemporaneous prayer, spontaneous prayer that just is, you know, it's supposed to be coming, flowing out of your heart. But how easy it is just to sort of reel off the same old phrases that you say every single time. And do it in a mindless way, just because they're the first words that come to mind, and you're not even sure what you're praying anymore. This is the kind of babbling that Jesus is talking about. I think another thing is, uh, is just nonsense prayers. Just prayers that you don't even understand. And you might think, well, who does that? Actually, a lot of people do that. You know, it was not uncommon, um, not so long back, for people to pray in Latin, a language that wasn't their own language and which they may have had a ropey understanding of because they'd learned these prayers in Latin. You know, if you're, if you're a Muslim from Bangladesh you will, um, and you're very devoted in your faith, you might learn the Quran in classical Arabic, which is not your language. 
and you might know it by heart and actually not understand a word of Arabic. And I, I, Christians are no different. We can just recite the same things that we've, we've heard and that actually mean very little to nothing to us. Now, if we're just going to sum all this up, what's Jesus talking about here? Babbling like the pagans. I think it's this. He's talking about turning prayer into a technique or a mechanism by which to get from God the thing you want to get. My wife and I like to go to um, Lidl to shop because it is the cheapest place. I was going to say on earth, but that just isn't true, is it? But it is cheap. And when you go to Lidl, I think Lidl are slightly paranoid that, that, that certain folk are going to turn up and steal their trolleys. And, um, you know, the trolleys are probably worth more than the food that's in them. So they protect these trolleys by forcing you to use a one-pound coin to remove them so that someone's weighing up. They're like, should I take the trolley or do I want my pound back? Most people are going to go, actually, a pound, it seems good to me. And, and so they'll take it back and they'll return the pound. And, you know, you can get one of those trolleys out <clears throat> by using something that has the exact dimensions of a pound coin. It can be a plastic token that has next to no value whatsoever, but it does the job. And I think that that's how some people approach prayer. That they are essentially inserting a plastic token in the hope of getting the thing that they want. There's a kind of valueless dimension to this. That they, there's no intrinsic value to what you're doing. You're just reciting words. You're just babbling like the pagans. And Jesus says, that's not how my people pray. To pray biblically is to pray in a way that is extraordinarily heartfelt and genuine. Sincere. Honest. And that's not to say that every time you pray honest prayers, it's going to be the prayers that, that are the ones that other people like to hear. They might be the prayers of honesty about the doubts that you're struggling with. Or of the fear that you're feeling. Or of the temptation that you're facing at this moment. But whatever you pray, it has to be real. Or else it's just babbling like the pagans, as Jesus puts it. He tells us some amazing things in a, in a short sentence, which is just so chock full of ideas. But he says, when you pray, he says, don't be like them. He says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You could underline every word in there. And see that there's so much power and force against this babbling that I'm talking about. Your father knows. He's your father. Why would you talk to your father with mindless babble? Your father knows. He is more interested in your situation and circumstances than even you are. He knows what you need. He cares passionately about your needs. And he knows what you need before you ask him. He has preempted you even coming to him in prayer, knowing the very desires of your heart that drove you into that secret place to pray to him. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? And I think some of you probably push back and say, well, what would be the point in praying then if God already knows what I need before I ask him? And I'm not going to try and unravel the mystery of that, except to say that Jesus assumes here that you will ask. He knows what you need before you ask him. There's still a requirement that we as Christians come to him and ask, that we express, that we give voice to what's on our heart. So 
we talked about people-pleasing prayer and pointless prayer. Finally, Jesus then steers us in a more positive direction and, and tells us how to pray properly. He goes on. He says, pray then like this. These words will probably be familiar to every one of us. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. As I said earlier, I'm not wanting to give you a kind of line-by-line breakdown of this. I just want us to focus on a few big principles here. And try and uncover what Jesus wants to teach us about the God that we're praying to. What I want you to see more than anything today is this. That what you believe about him is the most important thing about your prayer life. And I think there are are three big things here that Jesus wants us to know about God as we come to him in prayer. The first is this. That your father wants your mind upon him. Above all, when you come to him in prayer. When we ask ourselves what's the, question, the question, what's prayer for? I think most of us naturally assume that prayer is for the purpose of getting the things that we need. And I'm not saying that there isn't truth to that. But it's so interesting that when you read the Psalms and when you read this prayer here, the first half of this prayer is all about God's concerns before it's concerned with the things that you're interested in. That's the rugby going on, by the way. There's some serious passion downstairs. I think some of our biggest problems in life are rooted in and stem from our inability to see beyond our own noses. How many of our thoughts are consumed with ourselves? How much of our day is spent thinking about our problems, our needs, our desires? We're very self-centered, aren't we, by nature? We are so obsessed even with ourselves. How often we look in the mirror. How much time and consideration we give to what we wear. Some of us, not all. How much we think about the things that worry us or that that drive us, our passions. We are so self-centered, aren't we? And friends, while it's right to bring the concerns of yourself to God, one of those concerns is the concern with yourself. And one of the most powerful ways that God seeks to lift us out of that self-obsession is by reorienting all that we are towards the things of God. Prayer is as much about enlarging your life and your vision to be beyond you as it is about the things that you need and and struggle with on a day-to-day basis. This prayer begins, doesn't it? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to give you a much bigger view of life. And so often, the troubles that you struggle with on a day-to-day basis begin to dissolve or diminish the more that you are concerned with the bigger things of God. And can I just say a word to you? Because I know some of you guys are students fresh in London for a new 
start to your, um, a new phase of life. When you are thinking about joining a church, and when you are thinking about your walk with God over the ne- next few years, your temptation is going to be this. To find something that fills your needs. And so much of what is, 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 is called student work in London is really about just making students feel really great about themselves. And friends, I think that is entirely the wrong way to think about it. Ollie's going to agree with me passionately on this. Ollie works with students on, every day. I, put it, I had it put one way like this. That the whole point of having students in churches is to suck them into God's mission and then spew them across the nations. I passionately, wholeheartedly agree with that. Find a church where you feel excited about the mission of God in the world. And where you realize that your life is not just about your exams. And about the mates that you're making. And about the fun stuff you're doing. And about the gaming that you do till late at night. Or whatever it is that you're into. These things are of little consequence when you consider what God wants to do with your life on a big scale. And friends, when you learn to pray like this. Your heart is lifted up and you realize that you're part of a grand drama that God is working out in history that is much, much bigger than you, but that you can contribute to with a prayer life that is oriented as Jesus wants it to be oriented. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And another note on that, by the way, do you notice how this prayer is corporate? Forgive us our sins and so on. Give us our daily bread. It's another nail in the coffin to our selfishness. Jesus wants us to be concerned with the needs of those around us as much as with God's plans and purposes. That's the first thing. Your father wants your mind on him above all. Second thing. Your father wants you to approach him often and even daily. That's assumed, isn't it, in the way Jesus talks to us here, especially in verse... um, in verse 11 and 12, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He's describing here a person who lives hand to mouth, as it were, in need, reliance upon, upon the Father, both for their daily provision and also for their, for their forgiveness and grace that they need every single day. And friends, I want to urge you to make prayer a daily habit. Now, I know some of you will push back at me and say, listen, if this is all about relationship, that's what you've been telling us. Surely the opposite of relationship is to make it so formal that you have a plan to do it every single day. I'd want to come back at you and say this, listen, you do things that you consider important every single day. You brush your teeth, I hope. You wash, most of you. You wear clothes, all of you. You sleep when you're not distracted by all kinds of things. And there are things that you you just consider to be so important that you do them every single day. You eat. Maybe not after next week when we look at fasting. Some of you guys are going to be carb-loading, aren't you, Saturday (laughs) night before you come to church on Sunday. There are things that you consider to be so vitally important to your life that you do them every single day. And then there are other things that aren't really that important, but you do them every day just because you want to. Checking Facebook. Has anyone ever suffered or died because they haven't checked Facebook? I I don't think so. It's not really that important, but we do it, don't we? Because there's an inner compulsion, a desire that draws us in. You know, whatever other sort of things you enjoy, habits you're into, those kind of things, you do on a daily basis because they're important to you. Friends, to say, I'm going to make it my decision to pray every day, 
is just to say, this is more important to me than anything. And I'd also say this, that it's not in any way sort of in competition with the idea that prayer is a relational thing to do. Because relationships take this intentionality. You know, if you, if you bump into a friend that you haven't seen for a while on the street, as we, we occasionally do, don't we? And one of the ways you end the conversation is you go, hey, we should get together sometime. And really what you mean is, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> because if you really want to get together, you will make a date. You will, you will make it happen. But so often, like, we just, we just say these platitudes to each other, don't we? Now, when a person matters to you, you make it your, your intense aim and desire to make sure that you meet them. And when Jesus assumes here that his believers are going to want to pray every day to the Father, it's not a legalistic thing. It's not a rule thing. It's just that this relationship is designed to be fostered and enjoyed on a day-to-day basis. And God wants that level of dependence and enjoyment. Lastly, your Father wants you to know that he is listening. One of the things that most strikes me about this prayer is that it is the simplest, shortest little prayer, isn't it? We often pad things out because we think it gives it more weight. Some of you are looking for jobs and you, you have CVs and the temptation is always to pad out your CV. Make it sound a little bit better than, than the reality. So if you're involved in like your Christian uni at uni, you'll be like, you know, like Coyote here. I'm sure his CV says something to the effect, I was president of an international gathering of people uh, based around religious discussion and so on like this. And you can make it sound really fantastic. And when you write essays and submit, then you can pad them out a little bit with a bit of waffle here and there. Of course, everyone sees through this guff, but we think that it lends things more weight the more we pad stuff out and fill it out and make it sort of more wordy. How many books would be shorter, by the way, if people didn't think this way, right? If people just said what they wanted to say and then finished. Now, I don't think that Jesus is in any way ruling out the importance sometimes of praying at length. Do you remember that story of Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis? And... I think that it's meant to be a picture of a way, in a way of what it means to engage with God in prayer. And there's sometimes occasions in life when you will need to pray all night, as Jesus did before he chose his disciples. He had to wrestle this through in his spirit and speak to the Father all night long. But I think that when I read this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the one he taught us to pray, one of the most liberating things about it is that he says, listen, it's not... It's not the length of prayer. It's not how sophisticated your prayer is, or clever, or well-phrased. Say what you need to say in the confidence that the God who listens to you sees your heart, knows your desires, and won't forget. He's not some senile old granddad in the sky. Which I think is partly the assumption, isn't it, when we think we've got to say it over and over again at length. He just says, just come to him in this simple way and pray. And while I think that the longer you walk with God, the more your needs and concerns begin to multiply. And you can't pray for too short because you know that the stuff on your heart 
At the same time, I would rather that every one of you go away today thinking, it's better that I commit to praying for a short time every day in a real way, in a sincere way, than that I don't pray at all because it's this big thing in my mind that I have to do to impress God. It's not that at all. Don't you know, friends, that when Jesus gave his life for us on the cross, the greatest achievement that he made for us was making it possible for you, in a spiritual sense, to stand before the Father and know him as your Father without shame, without fear, without dread, and without condemnation. That is the meaning of what happened when when he gave his final breath on the cross. And the curtain of the temple split from top to bottom as though God himself rendered it apart. This curtain was a thick old thing. It was saying God wants you to draw near to him. Wants you to know him. Wants you to have a real prayer life. We're going to take communion now. And I know that some of you... You come with just a sense of just feeling useless when it comes to prayer. And listen, I often feel that way too. Communion is a reminder that God takes us, as it were, in Christ's own robes. As though you're dressed up as though you were the Son of God and He listens to you because you pray in Jesus' name. As though you were Jesus Himself asking for those things. Communion is a reminder of our right to stand before God as his children. And so as we pass the bread around, I want to encourage you guys. Maybe you'll use the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you just want to respond to something specific that I've said today. Let's take a moment to to commit to God afresh our desire to be more prayerful and to be more sincere and real in the way we pray.